Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Our discussion today will revolve around the state of attack surface management. David Monnier, Team Comrie Fellow, will share his thoughts and perspectives on this very important subject. Another highlight of our discussion today will be the findings from a very interesting research study that focused on the state of attack surface management. But before we get into all those details, I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome David and have him share with all of us some highlights of his professional journey. David, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, inviting us on to talk about our study. So it's always a pleasure uh, to come on. Some background about myself. So I'm, I'm from the United States in the Midwest. I had started my career Originally, I was in the U.S. Marine Corps, worked as a non-commissioned officer there. But when I got out of the Marine Corps, I got into uh, working with technology just out of a coincidence of, funny enough, a computer breaking that I ended up fixing and discovering I had some natural talents. I ended up going to work for Indiana University, working in high-performance computing, and from there moving on to their security office, working as a security engineer for them, basically looking after all the campuses around the state. And then shortly after that, I was invited to help come start the Research and Education Networking, ISAC, which is an executive-ordered set of organizations largely geared around kind of specific industrial sectors. In my case, it was research and education networking. There are also like financial sector, there are IT, ISAC, and so on. But ISAC is an information sharing and analysis center. So you could think of it as groups of people working together to share threat intelligence. And then after that, I was invited to join Team Cymru, where I've been here for about 15 years, uh, presently working as a fellow, but periodically helping to spin up new teams for us and identify new product needs and, and things like that. But I've been practicing for, I think it's 27 years now, something like that. Well, we're delighted to have you on the show and thanks again for your service. So David, before we launch into talking about the various findings, and I find them very interesting. To set the motivation, the context for the research study, it's a fact that the attack surfaces are evolving. The more digitized we get, the more we go to the cloud. And the hackers are not sitting idle. They're constantly getting more innovative with their techniques, tools, approaches. So it's a moving target for organizations to stay on top of things. I find it almost hard to believe that organizations can be ahead, but if they can, more power to them. So what 
what's the motivation? What led to this very important study that you all conducted? Well, very much like you said. So we've been working, Team Cymru, we've been a threat intelligence supplier to the industry since our inception. It's how we began our business. We used to kind of boast that we were the best security company no one had ever heard of because our research and efforts went into other people's products. So if you're familiar with the company BASF, we don't make antivirus, we make antivirus better. We don't make firewalls, we make firewalls better. This type of uh, slogan, if you remember their advertising back in the day. And that was really the core of our business. And we observe miscreant activities every day. It's a byproduct of our analysis efforts. It's a byproduct of our interest in understanding how the internet is used by society. We happen to feel that the internet is is probably one of the greatest creations mankind has ever developed. And we were looking at kind of how the security world was moving towards this notion of attack surface management, where they were kind of blending a few types of technologies together, uh, which you could think of as your vulnerability scanning, your asset uh, discovery. And those things were coming together. And and we felt there was an obvious uh, and useful connection uh, for us to be able to add threat intelligence to it. And threat intelligence, when you think of it in terms of, of defense, a lot of people often just think it's lists of bad IPs or things like that. But in reality, it also is, if you turn it around, it's also lists of IPs of yours that might be bad. So when you think of like reputational data and things like that, So what became obvious to us is if you're doing the attack surface management, wouldn't it be great to know what attacks you may have already been subject to? And and to that end, uh, what devices that you already own that may already be uh, compromised? So kind of taking that idea of knowing how bad things already are to decide, is this a system that I should patch or is this a system that I need to completely rebuild because it's already been compromised? And we saw that obvious need from an intelligence perspective. But then as we started to look at ways that we could apply it to kind of the existing marketplace, we realized that kind of none of the other products that were out there were approaching ASM the same way we were. They were very much looking at things. Most people's tools seemed very much geared towards, here's your IP, here's a problem it has, here's something you should do about it. But without really giving the people the ability to highlight which IP or what device, let's, let's use the term device actually, because the devices just happen to use an IP address, but, but what devices on the network are most critical to your operation? You know, that these tools in the marketplace, they, they didn't really have a way to highlight which ones were most important. And the devices themselves couldn't really tell you which was important. So we also sat down and said, okay, if you were going to look at ASM, What's the key value piece there? And what we concluded was that risk, understanding the risk to your business needed to be a piece uh, that was part of it. So what we've approached ASM as is the traditional sense, but what, what we have attempted to bring to the market as a new offering is the application of intelligence on top of that with kind of user-definable values for the assets as they're discovered. Okay. Thanks for sharing. So just to let listeners know that as far as the methodology and and participant demographics go, the study was commissioned on March 14th, 2022. 440 security practitioners were surveyed in the US and Europe. 
The survey was conducted online via Polfish using organic sampling. All respondents work on their company's security team, and all these organizations are using an attacks surface management platform. The industry representation is also pretty broad, ranging from finance to IT to military and defense, among others. The team size varied relatively little from less than 10 to over 30. So David, would you like to add anything to that from a methodology and participant demographic standpoint? Well, we had originally considered making it split into additional slices. So to differentiate, for example, between practitioner and executive, not that executive practitioning isn't practitioning of a sort, but we thought it might be useful to split those out. But in the end, what we found actually was that kind of the bulk of the world really isn't divided up that way. It's only kind of the biggest companies that have those kind of separations. Um, So when you think of the folks that took the time to fill out the review for us, many of which, or most of which I should say, really knew what they were talking about. So to kind of give you that value of of what their answers mean, these are the people who uh, roll up their sleeves every day and actually have to reach into the problem and and do something about what they find, not just run the tools, but oftentimes these were the folks, in particular, those smaller teams, those less than 10 people teams, they were often the same person who who helped manage the patching program or, or who helped manage their inventory systems and things like that. So value-wise, these people's opinions are not speculative. They, they, are, they are the practitioners who, who are largely responsible for making things happen based on the findings. Okay, good to know, good to know. So let's discuss some of the findings. So there are several interesting findings. Not sure how much time we'll have to go over all of them, but we can definitely cover some. The first one that I'd like to talk about is the biggest reason organizations implemented ASM is to increase the visibility of shadow IT in the enterprise. I think this is very significant. If you would expand on this and also describe what shadow IT means to the listeners. Sure, absolutely. So shadow IT is a side effect, more or less, of what you could think of as necessary growth. So organizations oftentimes have disparate teams that are spread out in function, but typically working towards the same goal, keep the company open, keep the company in business and so on. But what ends up happening is as needs change, in particular needs in the scope of being able to spin up new infrastructure very quickly and things like that, a lot of companies don't don't I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say don't like to because obviously they would they would prefer to do it the right way. Um, but a lot of companies find that like policy around asset controls hinder or stifle innovation. And, and whether it's real or not, whether that's true or not, we can't really speak to that. I'm sure that's some kind of psychology of the human work experience. But in actual practice, though, with, with certainty, organizations are hesitant to have to talk to the IT team. Let's, and let me use a practical example. So you have a software development team who has the need to work with some temporary data. They don't want to work with data from some live production database. So they need to set up a secondary temporary database. And these folks oftentimes will spin up an instance in a cloud or maybe some new VM even within their infrastructure, but they'll spin it up. They'll put data for use in that, and then they'll make use of the project, right? Well, if your main IT team 
is unaware that someone on the development team uh, has done this, you now have an asset that is not under centralized control, isn't the organization itself isn't aware of it, and it's full of, of data. And presumably, if you're spending the time to develop software to interact with that data, that data must be important. And we read about this all the time. You read about, so for example, Amazon S3 buckets, right? They're these virtual storage instances that people can spin up very quickly and put information in for various purposes, right? But it's think of it as file storage. And there are tools that you can you could pull up your favorite search engine and put in and, and look for Amazon S3 open bucket finder or something. And you'll see almost every day that there are people who have left these instances open. So meaning no authentication and anybody in the world could identify it, download the data and do something with that. So this is kind of the traditional understanding of shadow IT, right? It's these things that get stood up that people may not necessarily wholly know about. The organization itself may not be completely aware of. And the reason why it's such a big issue to folks is precisely the example I gave. Data ends up getting exposed this way and not just random data. We're talking often legally regulated data whether it be personally identifying information, whether it be health records, whether it be financial information. I mean, all kinds of stuff gets leaked out this way. So our intention for this with asking folks that was to see if our capability, how much effort we should really apply to doing this shadow IT identification, because it's not easy, right? How do you, how do you help somebody find something they didn't know they had? It's not an easy problem. So that was the reason for us to ask. We saw how many data exposure notifications go out. If you ever notice, by the way, those are never described as breaches, which if you think about it, it's it's kind of interesting, the choice of words that people use around those. <laughs> but those quote unquote exposures do add up to a great deal of loss, both in terms of productivity, but every time PII personally identifying information is exposed, there's a lot of times where there's government regulatory components around there where you have to go notify people, or perhaps even a company has to now provide credit monitoring or identity monitoring based on what type of uh, data it was that was exposed. So those kind of costs were very, very real. And so we weren't surprised to hear that so many people uh, considered shadow IT to be such a big problem. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me either because as, as you discussed, Shadow IT gets formed, gets created because certain divisions, certain parts of the organization wants to get certain things done. And for whatever reason, central IT is not able to respond in time or as per their expectation. So, and for other reasons as well. But that creates a problem in terms of data exposure. And you really cannot defend effectively if you don't know where all your vulnerabilities are, where all, where your data is residing, where your applications are residing. So it's great to know that there is a high level of sensitivity towards, towards this challenge. And one of the capabilities of ASM should be to increase the visibility of, of shadow IT. So that's, that's a very significant finding. Moving along, another finding that got my attention which is not surprising, but it it uh, validates the fact that more and more applications and infrastructure are in the cloud. 
and which is what 75% of your respondents said. But what is interesting to me is the statement here in the report, which says ASM, which stands for Attack Surface Management, is critical for all organizations, regardless of their cloud adoption, but should be an even higher priority for tracking and managing the attack surface for cloud-hosted assets. So I guess my question for you, David, is, and you obviously have a better understanding of the evolution of the ASM platform. Over the years, have they, have they enhanced their capabilities to better monitor cloud-hosted assets? Is that what's been the trend? Well, unfortunately, not really. A big component to this is kind of the discovery problem. And how most vendors choose to remedy this is either by IP space, so IP addresses, internet protocol address that people use to be on the internet. They are defined and issued out typically as network address space. You'll get a, a, a range of IP addresses, or they will tend to classify their assets based on namespace, which typically is in internet terms would be something like DNS, where DNS, you put in your domain name, let's use an example, foog.com. And as you add things in the form of subdomains or host names to that, in theory, they start to become discoverable. Where the problem with cloud computing comes in is when you license your ASM product, you're not going to go out and license a product for, and I'm not trying to pick on AWS here, but Amazon's AWS service is one of the loud, uh, largest and most popular cloud hosting services in the world, but you're not going to go license an ASM product to scan the entirety of their IP space. It's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. So you have to know your IPs. And again, it goes back to this problem of how will which are yours. In our case, we also, well, we work with IP addresses, obviously, but in our case, we, because we are an intelligence provider, we see a great deal of information already in particular IP, IP space, as well as namespace. But we also see things like certificates and keys and all this uh, kind of additional metadata that the internet kind of operates on. So we saw it as kind of a, an, an easy evolution to help do these discoveries that nobody else really had because the other products are requiring the user to know in advance all of their things. Well, shadow IT by definition means you don't know that you have some of this. So it's an approach, frankly, that starts off already hindered. So what we, how we change this is we look for other instances and other examples that we've identified through our other threat exploring and threat hunting efforts that appear to be related to other people's organizations. And we try to highlight those kinds of data sets to better inform the discovery model. Okay. Thanks for sharing. Uh -huh. Moving along to another interesting finding, which states that 23% of the respondents said that identification of rogue or unclassified assets is the most valuable capability that ASM has provided their organization. I guess my question here is, shouldn't this be obvious? Shouldn't that be what and ASM is supposed to be doing? Yes, <laughs> it certainly is exactly what ASM should be doing. And, and I think 
this highlights the shortcoming that I just described, right? So Mm -hmm. the reason why only 23% of them said that their application of, of ASM in their workplace was that effective at discovering those things is because the rest of the respondents, you know, the the remaining 77%, they are clearly limited because the only thing their ASM knows about are the things they already know about. So if you already know about it, it's unlikely for something to be rogue or unclassified, right? So this kind of static discovery approach, this is the fruit that comes off that tree. When you take a non-dynamic approach to understanding assets in a very dynamic environment, uh, that is what I would call modern computing, you're going to end up with, with low numbers like that because the rest of them, their tools probably just don't identify rogue devices. And that's an unfortunate side effect. Again, this was one of the motivations that led us to to create a product for this space. Okay. Now, um, uh, some of the findings speak to the challenges of deploying and implementing ASM platforms. And these challenges range, range from lack of integration with existing platforms, the amount of training that's required. And also, I found it interesting where organizations, uh, where the respondents said that they feel that their current platform has become more of a legacy. So my question to you is as follows. When an organization is investing in an ASM platform, they know fully well that at some point it will move towards becoming up. I don't know if obsolete is the right word, but what steps should an organization take? Should the security analysts, the security professionals take to ensure that their ASM platform is performing at a satisfactory level? Well, I, I think the initial steps are, are introverse, introvertal steps, right? So you have to ask yourself, do I know everything about my network? Do I know all of the devices I have? And if that answer isn't an absolute certain yes, which a hint to the listeners, it isn't, <laughs> <laughs> then you have to approach the tool sets as... Am I going to have a tool that's going to show me things I didn't know to know? And that, in my opinion, is the killer feature. Way more important, in my opinion, is discovery than even, say, the vulnerability management and discovery component, right? Like, if you don't know to know, then you won't won't get any benefit from it. But if you do discover something that's on your infrastructure that you didn't realize was there or that is your system is reliant on, because there are a bunch of non-system concerns as well. Like, for example, every, every person's network, they get onto the internet by way of a set of internet service providers. And what about the safety and reputation of those folks? If your tool can't tell you that your DNS hosting provider uh, has a poor reputation or that your internet service provider, that the IPs around your IP services are bad. If it's not able to show you these kind of things, then it suggests that you are probably working with something that is, frankly, like I said, antiquated of some sort, but frankly, let's use the word static. And if it is static, I think in the information age, that should be a huge red flag to you. That if this, that if this tool doesn't teach itself to some degree, and I'm at the operator is responsible for informing this, then I probably have a tool that is not future-proofed. Not that any tool is completely future-proofed, right? But there are certain methodologies that can help 
assure a future-proofed capability. And this kind of dynamic discovery is absolutely one of those capabilities. But in the end, uh, I think practitioner or decision makers need to ask themselves, how much is this tool teaching me that I didn't already know? And I'm not talking about that you have a vulnerability on some device you already knew you had. I mean, how much infrastructure is it really exposing to me that I didn't know before? And even inadvertently, you know, if, like I said, maybe someone plugged in some new device on your network, if it's not at least catching those types of things for you, then I would say you have an older tool. Right. Makes sense. And I'm glad you mentioned about the self-learning capability. So to what extent is AI being used to enhance the functionalities, the capabilities of these ASM platforms? So in our case, we're not really using AI. Mm -hmm. Not that we're against AI per se, but we didn't really see a great need for it per se relative to machine learning. And machine learning sense where there's a human who is, I guess, suggesting to the system what it should be doing as it's doing it, as opposed to AI where they become somewhat autonomous. You know, So in our case, though, is a great deal of what I would call machine learning, where as assets are discovered, we look at kind of the nuance of that asset, both from a service level, uh, from an IP level, and then from like what the operating system looks like. Think of it as a very signal-focused view, internet signal, that is. And we use what's discovered to kind of inform the next level of discovery. So for example, if we discovered a new domain within your namespace, say, again, using this foo.com example, but let's say yesterday you didn't have www.dev.foo.com, and today we're seeing that name being looked up in passive DNS data, we know that you have some new asset out there somewhere and can then start to go looking for it. And that type of in- informed learning is precisely how, how we approach this. But it's, it's a continuous thing. What happens 24 hours a day, uh, we continuously learn about the surface of the internet as a whole, for that matter, uh, but in particular of, of the asset tools uh, for folks. And then those assets, uh, as we uh, kind of learn from them, we go to look for similarities and we say, okay, what's just like this, but maybe isn't previously known? Uh, and we show you, hey, here's these potential things that we think might be related to you. And we let the the individual decide like, oh, this is related to me or, oh, no, this isn't me, but sure looks a lot like me. Maybe this is a phishing site or something. There are other approaches and other outcomes aside from your own attack surface that you can discover using the kind of machine learning method that we use. But I don't know that AI will ever totally get there for what it's worth, because I, I still think that when it comes to ASM, the human component is required. Like AI won't know the difference unless you share with it all of your client configurations. AI won't know the difference, for example, between your primary Active Directory's host and some dev Active Directory host. They will both appear to be running the same services, but you as the human know that one of them has your actual users and maybe another one has dummy data. So you can prioritize and say, ah, this IP, this host, this asset is my actual Active Directory server, whereas this other one is not. So don't show this as a high risk, show this other one as the high priority asset. And for that reason, I don't know that AI will ever really uh, fill in in this role, but we'll see. Okay, good to know. So talking about the human component, 
And in this discussion, we have been talking about attack surfaces more from a physical standpoint, devices and so on and so forth. How about humans as attack surfaces, as very vulnerable attack surfaces? What are your thoughts about are we doing better in terms of securing that very vulnerable attack surface? Can tools help us secure that attack surface? What are your thoughts? Well, I hate to be a naysayer, but uh, things aren't getting any better there, it seems. If you look at the SAND survey that comes out every year, if you look at the U.S. government's breach report or Verizon, they, they publish a report. Any of these reports, if you go look at them continuously for the last, I mean, since forever, since these reports have, have been produced, the number one compromise source is still stolen credentials. And the number one method for that is still some type of phishing or some type of social engineering, still. So nothing seems to really be changing there. The tools and the techniques being employed to gain access to this type of information haven't really needed to change much because the human element is still largely the same. And I say this all the time, and to listeners who may have heard me on any other podcast or may tune in or who happen to listen to ours, probably have heard me say it many times, but we still work and live in a world where everything is kind of magic. And the majority of, of people who are relying on technology still have absolutely no idea how it works and therefore can't really spot things when they aren't uh, correct, right? And uh, for the longest time, vendors tried to implement methodologies like, if you recall, it was always look for the lock icon in your browser window and make sure that that's always there. And so miscreants just started to put a block, up, the, the locked lock icon right on in the content of, of a phishing effort. And people would say, well, I saw the lock, so I figured <laughs> it was safe and, and here we are. And I'm not talking about fools here. I'm talking about board members and C-level operators and decision makers around the world in the largest companies in the world, the most capable, most successful people in the world still fall victim to this stuff. So unfortunately, I, I just don't know that any of that can be changed either, where we move to these concepts like zero trust, where you look for the behaviors of, uh, of specific devices and, and try to key on that. But realistically, by the time you're keying in on a behavior, it may already be too late, right? So the stolen credential, uh, the credential reuse, so, you know, wh- however you want to call them, there's variations of, of the methodology of the attack, uh, but they all come down to an imposter, if you will. Uh, that still turns out to be, uh, if not number one, top three, uh, year after year, way, way back. I remember when it was attacks were like buffer overflows were the primary method and people were looking for at the software stack uh, for what ways to gain entry. And then along the way, somebody figured out that we don't even need to talk to the machines, talk to the people, and the people will just give you access to the machines. And that hasn't changed. And unfortunately, I don't know that it will change. Uh, We look to incorporate that type of intelligence, though, into our ISM to let folks know when they have account level risks that are there. We're looking to add that capability as well. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a very difficult challenge when you're trying to secure every individual that works for an organization, whether it's through training or whether it's through some, some, some sort of technology. So that's, that's a very big hurdle to overcome. But anyhow, uh, moving along. So we've had the chance to discuss some findings that I found significant or interesting. Are there any others or is there anything that you would like to address? 
that you found interesting or something that surprised you? Well, one of the things that surprised us, I think, was something that I touched on at, at the beginning of our conversation here. We were kind of surprised that we that we weren't able to just apply intelligence to kind of the tools that were already out there. We thought we thought it would be it would be possible for us to like find someone we could kind of go with our typical business model, which was be an intelligence supplier. We were kind of surprised to see that none of the offerings out there really met what we felt were what you would want in the marketplace as the as the consumer. And we were surprised by that because we weren't in the space. There were already lots of expertise in the space. There's a lot of people out there who already have these types of tools, but they weren't seeing the problem the same way we were. Um, and we're not totally sure why that is. I'm not proposing we're geniuses or anything like that. In fact, I can assure you we're not. But it was interesting to us as intelligence practitioners how we saw the world as opposed to, say, security practitioners. And when you think about ASM, you think attack service management, you automatically think in terms of security. But really, what you, if you really think about it, ASM is an intelligence tool. ASM is, is being self-aware, is some type of self-aware intelligence capability that you then key onto other capabilities to the back of. So as you learn something new, aka as your intelligence increases, you then have some action to do. So perhaps it's vulnerability scan this device. Perhaps it's update an inventory management component. Perhaps it's disable the switch port that the device is plugged into if you can, because it wasn't plugged in there yesterday and it's not an authorized device. But any way you look at it, and regardless of the outcome, that initial step really is an intelligence step. And that was kind of surprising to us. And I think it's a side effect of, like I said, our approach has been, for lack of a better term, intelligence applied to security as opposed to security applied to asset management. And so because we kind of approached it from that step back, I think we came up with different, what I would call killer features for something if we were going to make it. And in the end result, when we went out and looked to see, to make sure there was really nothing out there like it uh, and discovered there wasn't, we were kind of surprised by that because like I said, we were, I won't say we're late to the party, but we definitely weren't first people in the ASM space. So that was kind of a surprise to us. Another question that comes to mind based on attack reports that are published in the media, where oftentimes organizations are accused of not promptly reacting or responding to alerts that they receive from various types of monitoring tools, technologies, service providers, various types of intelligence sources. So going back to this platform, the ASM platform, which obviously is there to help organizations have a better understanding of their attack surfaces, provide advanced warning. Now, have you all thought of a feature whereby there is some kind of a logging that certain alerts, certain notifications went unheeded or went unresponded, or there is a, there's a way of notifying multiple personnel just to make sure that the, the signal doesn't get go unheard or do you see my question from where I'm coming? Yes, absolutely. And we have. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel at every turn. So in our capability, we have obviously incorporate the idea of external APIs so that you 
you can trigger to specific systems, or if nothing else, at least have the notion of roles or groups within the tool so that if a specific category of event happens, notify a specific group of people. Exactly. Yes. Of course, those capabilities are there. But what we really think is is one of the key differentiators, at least for our approach, is this ability for individuals to prioritize assets themselves so that you're not so that you're not required to react to every quote unquote high or critical event because not every device is is created equal, not every service is equal. And frankly, there's only so much time in the day. And if you have to pick between defend the mothership or defend a rowboat out in the dock, you're going to defend the mothership, hopefully. So your tool, if it's not aware of that, uh, is going to be, that's going to be a problem. Um, so we've approached in the terms of both communication level uh, tuning, group and role tuning, and then also asset prioritization uh, tuning as well. Fantastic. Because that's been one of my concerns, one of my pet peeves, that if you have access to all this intelligence to access all these tools, you must have a good governance system in place where you're paying heed to the alarms that are being raised. Talking about governance, this is my final two-part question to you. Okay. So let's say an organization decides to buy or invest in a new ASM platform. As we all recognize that just investing in a tool is not good enough to extract the maximum value from it. There is a people aspect to the implementation. There's a process aspect to the implementation. So if you had to make recommendations to potential buyers or investors of this platform, what does it take to prepare the organization so they can effectively use such a platform? What would you say? I have a very simple answer to your, at least the first part there. And that is the will to do something about it. You mentioned compliance. Regulatory typically is that these kind of policy concerns are usually what drive people in implementing ASM solutions. And those external drivers are rarely effective motivators. In fact, there are whole or entities and organizations that carry adequate insurance to pay the fines for non-compliance because they wholly expect to be out of compliance because they consider the compliance component a burden. So the first thing that I propose is that be willing to, to do something with the findings. Don't approach ASM as a something uh, that you have to do because someone else said so, but recognize that someone else said so because what you do is important to the world, to society, uh, to people, perhaps even to, to relatives and things like that. I mean, and think of the impact of what happens if you turn this thing on and discover that you have something bad going on. A lot of people are hesitant to turn on a tool like ASM because they know what's going to come out the other side is going to be something they're going to have to do something about. And I'm not saying that people are lazy, but I will tell you that only bodies in motion tend to stay in motion, I think is the, uh, <laughs> is the adage, right? So if bodies aren't in motion to begin with, going and getting an ASM tool isn't going to set them in motion at all. So my number one advice to anybody considering to go down the path of implementation of ASM is one, be willing to do something that you find. But number two, be willing to actually use it because it's going to make your job easier. It's going to make your life easier. 
and kind of taking the ostrich head in the sand approach that doesn't help anyone. And like I said, think of the people using the service. Think of why it is that you are running the service to begin with. Think of those people. Think of that money. Think of whatever is the driver, but think of that stuff and ask yourself, how important is this to everybody and and how willing am I to keep it working and keep it going and ensure that willingness is, is present and communicated to all of your staff. If you have people Maybe as this tool turns out work to do, if you have a bunch of other people that are, that are going to have to be doing the actual work, make sure that they understand, make sure they are all bought in. But I know that's a silly answer uh, to a technical question because uh, it's not technical at all, if you will. The answer is not technical at all. It's it's human will. So uh, sorry, that was a very verbose thing to what I t- had warned was going to be a simple answer, but uh, simply have the will to do something about it. Well, I think that that's a very... Um... Sound advice. It's a very wise answer. And that's what most organizations struggle with. It's the softer side of things that organizations struggle with more than the harder side of things. Not trying to suggest that implementing technology effectively is any easier, but providing the appropriate governance around technology implementation, around leveraging these tools can be equally, if not more challenging. And I want to reiterate what you said about having the will, having the commitment. In my book on cybersecurity readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, one of the top cybersecurity success factors, which I share in the context of the framework that I propose, is the top management commitment. Another related factor is creating and sustaining a VR in it together culture where everybody gets involved. This is just not the SOC team that can make miracles happen. Everyone has to play their role. So taking this example of the attack surface management platform, obviously specialists will be running this platform and they have to be adequately trained because if you don't have good training, you can't get most out of these platforms. But then, as you mentioned, when you get those that feedback, and I love what you said, oftentimes we don't want to probe in a certain direction or we don't want to invest in certain things because we don't want to know what we don't know. You can go with it in many different ways. I don't want any further education because that will enlighten me on my lack of awareness, right? Absolutely. So, so here we go in the context of ASM, you are investing in it because you truly care because you truly want to do your part in trying to secure as best as you can. We all understand that you cannot secure everything and that you will never be in a situation where your systems can't be compromised, but putting your best foot forward and doing everything you can and constantly monitoring these devices, constantly making sure you have an oversight team, you have an incident response team or why, by whatever name you may, may want to call this team. Bottom line, again, it boils down to asking yourself the fundamental question. We've invested in this platform. Are, are we making full use of it? Are we getting what we wanted from it? And if there is a deficiency, what is it and how do we address it? So that kind of active, proactive approach is so, so critical. So David, we are running out of time. I'd like you to share some final thoughts. Yeah. So much of what we've said today probably sounds somewhat elementary to folks. And I'd ask everybody to kind of consider why that is. Like, why does something 
so obvious or seemingly obvious once it's explained to you, why is it still so rare? And why, why, is, it, why is it not happening in broader scale? And we should ask ourselves these questions uh, because we are the people who are the solution, right? Even if we're just the user, we can go ask the provider and say, hey, why are you, why are, if you're not doing this, why, why aren't you? And start to kind of apply that upward pressure in everything that we're doing. Because like I said, we're all reliant on technology. This is not going to go away. I mean, barring some type of Corona event where we have a sun flare, knock everything out, we're, we're in this for the long haul. Capitalism alone is going to drive things towards lower cost solutions. I mean, that's just the, that's the direction of that energy. And if we're not looking at it as, and I don't, I'm not trying to paint a dire picture, but if we don't paint it as a very, very serious component of our entire existence, I fear that we're going to miss something. So when it is that someone comes along and kind of upsets a space, arguably, as we have with these new capabilities, we should ask ourselves, why, why, why is that? And, and if it was like that, what more could we be doing? And of those what mores, how many of those things are unknown? So like, if you're out there and you have an idea, you think like, oh man, you could even then go add on to X, Y, or Z, share that idea or start up an, a, a solution because frankly, the world needs it. We're getting more and more reliant on technology more and more of our whole life data-wise is, is stored electronically. And for us to be such so reliant on something that's seemingly under constant attack and continuously growing and just out of hand, we should be asking, is everything being done that we could? And I don't mean just asking of ourselves, but like I said, we should be asking the people that we take services from. What are you doing to secure my things that you have possession of? So I know, again, that's kind of the lofty answer, but I think it really does. It comes down to mass participation. Like you said, it's that we can do attitude. It's absolutely critical. We're all subject to the technology. So let's at least make it work to our will. And that's that's what I think would be a bright future if everybody got involved, including just every user. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, David, this was great. Thanks for your time, for your insights. I know the listeners appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Special thanks to David Monier for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.